Well, let me add my warm welcome to you and thank you uh, to Richard for leading us and to our musicians. Just before we start in John's Gospel, you'll see on the screen the picture of a book. It's called Real Life Jesus by a man called Mike Cain. Some of you will have encountered Mike Cain at Word Life. He was doing the Bible readings this year. That's, uh, I think, the best and most accessible way into John's gospel that's uh, out there in the Christian book market, Real Life Jesus. It's a book that you could read for yourself. It's also a great book to give to somebody who is investigating Christianity. So it's in the Connect magazine with a longer review, and I commend that to you. Now, we continue our series in John's Gospel today, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, the wedding at Cana, and you'll find that on page 887. Now, you may have heard a talk at a wedding on this passage along the lines of Jesus also went to a wedding. And so, we might have to clear away some cobwebs so we can understand what it is all about. Um, I've never preached on this passage before. God is very kind to me in that as tomorrow I do a seminar on marriage, I get to preach on a wedding uh, the day before. Um, it's been a real benefit to me to study this, and I pray that uh, some of that benefit will uh, be all of ours. So let me pray, and then we'll read and study the verses together. Our Father, we pray that today we would, as Richard has already prayed, See the glory of Jesus through these words of inspired Scripture. We pray, Lord, that we will see and experience what it means to reflect on these things and say, that was glorious, or he is glorious. Lord, as we pray that with all the clutter and busyness of life and not least the clutter and busyness of this morning, we're kind of a long way from maybe that sense. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would set our hearts and minds alight that we can say, Jesus really is glorious. Raise our affections for him. Strengthen our faith in him, or help us to believe in him for the very first time, for his sake. Amen. So John 2, verses 1 through 11, page 887. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, here's the first kind of surprise, woman, what does this have to do with me? Or more literally, woman, what's this got to do with me and you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it 
And when the master of the feast tasted that the water had become wine, did not know where it had come from, though the servant who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested or revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now some headings on the back of the service sheet. You see the first one, that was glorious. When did you last see something or hear something or experience something and say that was glorious or a phrase like it, that was amazing? Or how did he do that? Or wasn't that stunning? It might be scenery that leads to that reaction, spectacular mountains or crashing waves. It might be music, listening to a special performance when the atmosphere is electric and you turn to the person you're at the concert with at the end and whisper in the middle of the applause, that was just extraordinary. Your minds are there. For me, they're all sporting moments. Here's a trip down memory lane for the nearly 50s. Ryan Giggs, spectacular goal against Arsenal. Manchester United winning the European Cup with Teddy Sheringham and super sub Oli Gunnar Solskjaer on the wire. Bob Champion, remember him? Winning the Grand National on Aldeniti after recovering from cancer. Jonathan Edwards breaking the triple jump world record, jumping more than half a foot further than anyone had ever jumped in history. Stephen Redgrave winning his fifth consecutive Olympic gold medal. Getting an Olympic pin from the president of the IOC for the greatest Olympic achievement in history. And just so you know, I'm not living in the past. After 140 years in 2016, Hibernian FC Scottish Cup champions. That was glorious. I mean, it is glorious. If you're there in the stadium, you don't stand up at the end of the game and go, well, that was glorious, wasn't it? I mean, you kind of experience the reaction. That was glorious. And if Liverpool win the Champions League all over the country, well, not entirely all over the country, but lots of people will stand up in their front rooms and say, that was glorious. Now, whatever it is that leads you to say that was glorious, it's not just an objective, analytical, cerebral reaction, although it is. You see, when you say that was glorious, it is at one level an objective, analytical, cerebral reaction because it is glorious what you have seen. But when you stand up and applaud and say that was glorious, it's also a felt response. It is reason and reaction or understanding and emotion, which he calls passion. And however you are wired, whether you're the person who stands up in the football stadium and leads the singing, or joins in the singing, or doesn't join in the singing, however you are wired emotionally, you will still experience and understand what it means to say that was glorious. It's not how you are that determines that. 
When did you last say that or feel you were liberated to say that about the Lord Jesus? Isn't he glorious? Wasn't that glorious? Now, one, that is entirely appropriate reaction to Jesus. It is an elusive reaction to Jesus. Not because we are wired that way, because I, I think perhaps we might be a little suspicious of that, and we should not be, but I think the, the devil wants us not to reflect and respond to Jesus in that way. And uh, as Jesus reveals his glory and we see his glory and we see he is glorious, so that was glorious, our affections for Jesus are raised. And if you catch just a slight glimpse this morning of the glory of Jesus, your faith in him will be enriched. It will have been good to be here. Now, let me show you that this is what John, the writer of the gospel, intends as an appropriate reaction to Jesus. Now, on the back of the sheet, you'll see uh, the headings, signs in John's gospel. And there are some key verses from the beginning, the end, and from our passage. Now, look at the first one. They're all familiar verses uh, to us. And this is like uh, seeing the, uh, the wood for the trees. John 1.14, the Word, that's the eternal Son of God, became flesh, became a man, and dwelt among us, came to live in the earth. And we, John the writer and the other disciples, have seen, have witnessed with our own eyes, what is it that they have seen? Jesus? No, they have seen his glory. And if Jesus' glory is what they have seen, and if Jesus' glory is what John has recorded in his gospel, that we can see his glory, and what is the content of the glory of Jesus? Grace and truth. The fullness or the sum of his grace and truth is his glory. There's nothing vague about the glory of Jesus. You see, when you meditate on truth in Scripture, you need to be meditating on the glory of Jesus. But they're connected We're maybe better here at meditating on truth and cautious of allowing that to lead us to meditate on the glory it reveals. You see what John is saying, what is the response of faith to say the death and resurrection of Jesus? What's the response of faith to the death and resurrection of Jesus? Is it I understand it and I can explain it or is it that was glorious? both as we understand it we respond that was glorious now the, the, the next key verse is from our passage look at chapter 2 verse 11 this the first of the signs Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him what Jesus did at the wedding was reveal his glory the disciples saw his glory, and believed in him. Their faith was not strengthened. 
because he turned water into wine. I mean, that doesn't do anything for me, and I'm sure it didn't do anything for them. I mean, you might conclude cerebrally that this man is God if he has supernatural power, but their faith was strengthened because they saw beyond the miracle to what lay within the miracle, the glory of Jesus. It's far too simplistic to say they believed in him because he did it. And that's true if you do evangelism, if you do a a course on Christianity. I mean, there are so many miracles. It's a no-brainer that Jesus is God, but that doesn't get people. It's the glory. Now, I don't want to stretch the football analogy too far. But what makes someone supporters of a team? It's not because they believe that they're the best. It's because they believe that they're the best. It's both. And then the end of the gospel, these are written. Uh, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, that's the purpose statement of the gospel. These are written signs, evidence, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, faith, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Evidence, faith, and life. What's the evidence? As soon as you use the word evidence, what's the evidence? The evidence is not primarily that Jesus changed water into wine. The evidence is that he revealed his glory. I think that's right. Is the evidence the miracle that Jesus changed water into wine? Yes. But what do we mean by that? Isn't it the glory that he reveals in the miracle that leads to faith, that deepens faith, that leads to life, that quickens our Christian life. So I hold before you this morning a fact about Jesus' life or something about the glory that it reveals. What's going to get you? One, your mind. The other, your heart. Both are what deepens your faith. Now, I put there uh, just a kind of summary then of what's going on in the gospel. The signs, the miracles reveal Jesus' glory, the evidence, so that people believe in Jesus' faith and of life in his name, life. Now, the setting of the first sign is a family wedding. Now, that might strike you as a little bit odd. I mean, we've got this gospel with this grand prologue, followed by this grand scene with John the Baptist when he points to Jesus and says, behold, this is the Lamb of God. And then it comes gloriously down to earth with uh, uh, John and Andrew and and Simon Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. And then we have a, a, we're expecting to go back up into the clouds again to the kind of stratosphere of theology. And here we are at a family wedding, relatives of the Lord Jesus, probably. The first of seven signs. Uh, I go for seven signs that culminate in the resurrection of Jesus. There are other ways of looking at the seven signs, but I think that's 
uh, right? But it's striking that it's this ordinary domestic setting, a family wedding, that Jesus first reveals his glory. I mean, why is it that? Because that's when he first did it. It's his eyewitness testimony. But the revelation of his glory at a family wedding. Moreover, most of the people who were at the wedding didn't see his glory. So why? What's going on? As far as most people were concerned, the wedding just carried on as as normal. I mean, who knew? His mum, the servants, Jesus' disciples... But nobody else did. An ordinary domestic setting with Jesus' glory revealed, but only to a few. It's a little odd. Now, it does run with the uh, down-to-earth, up-close-and-personal stuff about the call of John and Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And we'll see later why Jesus restricts the revelation to only a few. His comment, my hour has not yet come. But let's face up to the fact that this is an ordinary domestic setting, but there is nothing ordinary ever about a wedding. It is very significant that Jesus chooses a wedding to first reveal his glory. Now, let me just unload one or two things we'll look at tomorrow night. What is the significance of a wedding or a marriage? What is the significance of this ordinary family wedding at Cana? What is or was or might be the significance of your wedding and your marriage? Marriage is part of God's perfect creation, a man and a woman, equal but different, living together in a one flesh, loving lifetime union based on covenant promises. Marriage, therefore, reflects in a particular and powerful way creation in the image of God, equality and complementarity in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit in a perfect, intimate relationship, one God in three persons. Now, each of these merits unpacking, not for now, though. Marriage, this ordinary little wedding, marriage is the last word in the Bible's account of creation. It is the conclusion to the description of the perfect order God created. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. In a fallen world, all through the Old Testament, marriage is a picture of redemption. In the Old Covenant, the relationship between God and Israel is a marriage. In the New Covenant, the covenant relationship between Jesus and his church is a marriage. Jesus The bridegroom, as it were, is engaged to his bride, the church, currently. He's engaged, but the marriage is still to come. Marriage is a picture of the new creation, a glorious wedding day that lasts for eternity. Here's Revelation 19.7. Let us exult and rejoice and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb. John chapter 1, part 2 has come and his bride has made herself ready. The lamb we have seen in John's gospel is Jesus. Every marriage on earth, every wedding, including this wedding at Cana, including your wedding, is a sign that points to the glorious wedding day that begins the new creation. And that is when Genesis 2, 24 and 25, destroyed by the fall, will be fully and finally reconstituted. 
just get your head around this. The day Jesus returns in glory will be the day when Jesus will leave his Father's side and hold fast no longer to his betrothed, but to his bride, to his wife. And they will become one flesh. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. That's the one flesh intimate union between Christ and his church at the dawn of eternity. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The next time you and I will be naked and not ashamed will be in the new creation where there is no shame. And so this is no ordinary start to Jesus' ministry, this family wedding. It is a perfect way to begin his public ministry, to first reveal his glory. He reveals his glory in the middle of a wedding that reveals his glory. He reveals his glory in a wedding that points to him. Now, if you've caught any of the theology of that, and it is complex, the wedding marriage theology, but wonderful, your reaction will be, just if you've caught some of the connections in that, isn't he glorious? Isn't this glorious? There's another teensy clue in the text that this is indeed what is going on. It is complicated, this. I was trying to run it by Sally yesterday, and she went, oh, she, you know how she looks? She looks at you, and she goes. <laughs> Remember, it's Sunday and not Monday, dear, she said. Marriage seminars tomorrow. <laughs> but it, it is all here, you see, and it's hard to get your head around this, but it's extraordinary what's going on. As the first time the Son of God reveals his glory is in a wedding. It's so powerful. And remember what the wedding ultimately points to, the new creation when the son will leave his father and become the husband of his wife, the church, and the dwelling place of God is with man, one flesh, for all eternity, and there will be feasting and joy, and the book of Revelation is full of descriptions of the new wine. What's going on here? There's a detail in the text that persuades me this is right. The account begins, verse 1, on the third day. Why does John say that? Well, because it was the third day after the bit that happened before. John was there. I love it how Jesus calls John to be his first disciple, because he's the one he's going to get to write it all down. He didn't know that then. but only here in John's gospel does he record days. Why does he record days here? Well, what's day one? Day one is chapter one, verses 19 to 28, when the delegation is sent from Jerusalem to interrogate John the Baptist. Chapter 129, just look at that. The next day, that's day two. 135, the next day, that's day three. 143, the next day, that's day four. Chapter two, verse one, on the third day, three days later, that's day seven. How did John's gospel begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and nothing was created other than in the Word. How does the Bible begin? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus comes onto the stage of human history and begins the process of reversing the fall that will lead in the end to a new creation. And here we are in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, day 7, the day of eternal rest, which is the new creation. And we're at a wedding that reveals his glory, that points to the new creation. And you've got to respond to that. Isn't he glorious? Now, that is enough to lead us to faith. That is enough to feed our faith. That is enough to strengthen our faith. That is enough to raise our affections to Jesus. But there is always more always more. Number one, Jesus shows his glory in his divine distance. Now, I've wrestled with whether that's the right heading. You see what I mean by it. On the third day, there was a wedding, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's a family wedding. Jesus' mom is there. Jesus and his disciples are also invited. A wonderful bit in one of my long commentaries that spends about 50 million pages after that, saying that it was probably a family wedding and that Jesus and his mom knew them. Okay, yeah, we got that. It's likely that she was there as an extra pair of hands. She said, look, I know it's a big deal. Weddings in the ancient world were big deals. I'll come along and I'll help. That's what's going on here. She knows what's going on behind the scenes. She knows what's going on in the kitchen. And Jesus' mom tells Jesus, the wine has run out. And, And keep in your mind that most people at the wedding had no idea what was happening the conversation and the miracle itself, none of it would have been recorded on the wedding video. We get to see behind the scenes. And why did Mary tell Jesus there was no wine? What did she expect him to do? After all, this was the first miracle he performed. No track record to this point. It's very normal, isn't it? In a crisis, she goes to her son and says, look, do something. Just do something. But she must have known Jesus was different. He never sinned. I mean, you know that if you had a kid that never sinned. One or two of you just winsomely laughed there. Could it just be that she's on the edge, aware of the embarrassment this would be to the family whose wedding it was that the wine had run out and you would never live that down? You would always say, do you remember that wedding at Cana when the wine ran out and we all drank water? And then it would get exaggerated to, do you remember that wedding at Cana when somebody died? That's what happens, you know, the, the thing runs. So it may be that she's just on edge. Jesus, do something. And his response is strong. Woman. It's like Jesus in the temple when his mom and dad found him. If you ever lost your child, we lost one in Tesco once. Jesus was lost and they found him in the temple. What would you have said to a 12-year-old and you found him in the temple? You would have kind of clipped his... No, you can't do that now. You would have said, where have you been, darling? Jesus says to his mom and dad, you know, you should have known where I would be. And here he says, woman, 
He says it like that, woman, what's this got to do with me? What's this got to do with me and you, literally? My hour has not yet come. It's not disrespectful, but it's distant. It is distant. The significance that even Jesus' own mother, like every other person, must come to him as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's a powerful, powerful thing. Jesus, she cannot be saved because Jesus is her son. She can only be saved if she believes in Jesus as her Savior. Family connections, religious connections, parents, faith, nothing gives us special privileges, special access to God. Now, you can apply that to your own life and to your own circumstances. She cannot be saved because Jesus is her son. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, that phrase, my hour has not yet come, throughout John's gospel refers to the time or the hour as his death on the cross and the exaltation of glory bound up in it. And that hour when Jesus supremely reveals his glory has not yet uh, come. So why on earth then does he go ahead and perform the miracle, even though he says, my hour has not yet come? That's a good question because here's a deeply theological answer, because he's kind. Not least to his mother. You know, there's only so much distance she could take on her heart that day from her son. But he very powerfully and lovingly moves her on in her faith. The distance narrows when she realizes that he did not do this because she asked him as his mom. He did it because he wanted to save this family from social embarrassment. Yes, I think so, but none of these are the main reasons. Now, whenever you say that as a preacher, everybody hears you as saying, well, he thinks that's not true. They are reasons, but they're not the biggest reason, but they are reasons. Jesus performs the miracle and reveals his glory as a preview, a glimpse of the glory that will be revealed when his hour finally uh, comes. That's the reason the miracle is only seen by uh, a few. Now, the dialogue John records is sparse. We go straight from verse 4 to verse 5. I mean, what goes on in between? Well, we're not told, so we'll not speculate there's a divine distance between Jesus and his mother because she needs to see him as her savior. But Jesus moves her on in her faith. And what his mother said to the servants, verse 5, it seems she's beginning to get it. Here's a great principle for the Christian life. And you can understand where a famous brand got its logo. Just do it. What a powerful statement from the mother of Jesus. Do what he says. I was in London on Thursday and arranged to meet someone on the corner of Oxford Circus and Regent Street um, outside the Nike store. Hence the illustration. It's more like Nike heaven 
with prices from heaven. All over the store, all over Oxford Street. Just do it. I had no idea until this week they got it from Mary, Jesus' mum. What's the Christian life involve? Maybe you've always wanted to know. Do what Jesus says. WWJD. What would Jesus do? That's what we're to do. Number two, Jesus shows his glory as the perfect purifier. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, draw out some of it and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And as we read on, we know it's now wine. Jesus has performed a miracle, turning the water into wine. It's not a conjuring trick. It's a miracle. Go down to Waitrose after the service, buy every single bottle of water in the store, bring them all back here, and turn that into wine. That's what he did. It's a miracle. The stone jars or water pots were for daily purification, ceremonial washing. And if you were a Jew then, every day after your tea or your lunch or your breakfast, you would go through a ritual, purification, 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 ritual purification that never purified you because you had to do it again after the next meal. And in the Jewish law, these rituals with water weren't there to give true peace from God and joy in God that comes from cleanness but rather to point to the need for cleansing that would be permanent because it would be real. To point out their need and to point forward to the day and the one who could cleanse them once and for all and give them true peace from God and joy in the Lord. Why? Because the cleansing on offer. I mean, just look at the relative cleansing that's on offer. Washing in water after a meal to give you just a tiny glimpse of what you would just love to have, which is real cleansing. And being washed in the blood of the Lamb. You want real washing. You don't want ritual or religion. You want regeneration. The real thing. We've had Nike and now we've had Coca-Cola, both from John 2. What a difference there is between washing your hands and being washed by the blood of the Lamb. What a difference there is between coming to a church and going through the ritual, standing up when we sing, sitting down when we pray, saying your amens, putting 5p in the offering bag or 5,000 pounds. What a difference between that and going home on a Sunday and saying, isn't he glorious? Isn't Jesus extraordinary?
Isn't it wonderful that I don't have to go home and after my Sunday lunch go through all these rituals because I'm washed clean by the blood of Jesus. What's the significance of changing the water into wine? What do we make of wine? Wine means lots of things. One of these things is the blood of Jesus. It's all over John 6. Here's from one of the other gospels. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The wine in these water pots that day stands for the wine that he will drink, which is the wrath of God and the wine that he drinks now in the new creation, which is the fruit of righteousness. Three, Jesus shows his glory as the all-providing bridegroom. Verse nine, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew that the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. That's just a statement of fact. That's what happens at a wedding. But you have kept the good wine until now. He doesn't know where it's come from. He calls the bridegroom, assuming it's him. It's the bridegroom's responsibility to provide the wine. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk. But you kept it till now. The new wine Jesus brings is better than the old. The new wine Jesus brings never runs out. Life in Jesus' name is not three score years and ten. It is eternity. Believing in Jesus now means that we can drink the first fruits of the wine. And in the new creation, we will drink with Jesus of the fruit of the vine. Jesus is the perfect bridegroom betrothed to his church. The wedding is the dawn of the new creation. And in eternity, nothing that is good will ever run dry. For Jesus shows his glory and his disciples believed in him. This, the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested or revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. They saw Jesus' glory and his disciples believed in him. They saw his glory and they believed in him. Yes, they saw him change water into wine. But they saw his glory. They didn't believe in him because they saw the jars of water full of wine. They believed in him because they saw his glory. The sign, the miracle revealed his glory. That is what enriched and strengthened and deepened their faith. That is what raised their affections for Jesus. His divine distance from you and I, even now, reveals his glory 
and deepens our faith. The fact that he closes that distance in our lives day by day to move us on in our faith, revealing his glory, deepens our faith, raises our affections for him. He is the perfect purifier that washes us clean in his blood. He is the all-providing bridegroom. He shows his glory and his disciples believed in him. So our response should be to all this, that was glorious. And I'm not a kind of shouter preacher. You know, the worst kind of preachers are shouters and spitters. Don't sit in the front row. So you could come at this two ways. You know, that was glorious. He is glorious. How did Jesus do that? It had to be a wedding, didn't it? Now we see why. He is truly amazing. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Well, let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture that reveals to us the glory of your beloved Son on a wedding day that pointed to Jesus. Jesus revealed his glory. the perfect purifier of sin. Oh, what it is to be washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. Because Jesus drank the bitter wine of your wrath. What it is to be betrothed to the perfect bridegroom Jesus. And to know that Each day of our engagement to him leads to the dawn of eternity, the wedding feast, when Jesus Christ will become the husband of his wife, the church, which is all believers. And we will drink with him of the fruit of the wine, eternal life, eternal joy. Help us, Lord, to be liberated to respond. Isn't he glorious? Help us to do that as we sing. Thank you for the gift of songs and hymns and psalms that raise our affections for Jesus and to him. May these two songs that we sing now do just that for us. For Jesus' sake. Amen.